Welcome to The Map of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 15th episode, it's our very special mailbag episode, tentatively titled The Math of Me. My very first guest, Margaret H. Willison, will be walking me through questions from listeners and former guests of the show. We'll discuss such topics as combined library and garden sales, how I benefited from the downfall of the Sega Saturn, and how, throughout the better part of my life, I've used popular culture to build rapport among new friends. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you could become a guest on the map of you. Editor's note, we recorded this very late at night for me and very, very early in the morning for Margaret. So if we sound a little bit loopy, that's why. We join this conversation already in progress. you who don't know you, Lucas, which is weird because this is your <laughs> podcast, but for those of you who don't know you, why don't you tell me who you are and why you're a beautiful and unique snowflake? Because Chris Haley is going to start charging me royalties on that. <laughs> I'm Lucas Brown. I host The Math of You as well as Wait, two other podcasts that are... This what? podcast? You host this podcast? Indeed, this podcast. Weird. Right? Wacky, isn't it? wacky as well as two other podcasts that are currently on hiatus due to the sheer amount of work that goes into running them that's crossroads of destiny and dashcast which are recaps of avatar the last airbender as well as keeping up with the kardashians respectively (laughs) and they're both on hiatus because it takes about three hours of notes and watching and prep work for each one hour episode and at a certain point when Kimiko's and my jobs get too busy we just don't have the energy so those have been on hiatus since june but the math of you has been coming out weekly since mid-August. I have not missed a week so far. Hey! And it's been going very well. Yay for Lucas! I agree that it's been going very well. But I also, like, (laughs) feel a strong amount of bias because 80% of the people you've interviewed have been my friends. So, of course, (laughs) I love it. I'm like, yeah, I want to hear about Camille's childhood. (laughs) Camille's was a good... Although I didn't learn until much later that her her dad has the most ass-kickingest name on the planet. So true. It's a name that like kicks in doors and demands an expletive after it. It's great. For those of you who don't know, first off, go listen to the Historically Black podcast that she did about her dad. It's amazing. And the Million Man March. Yes, exactly. And her dad's name is Booker T. Washington, which just, yeah, begs for an expletive at the end of it and a door to be kicked in and your name announced. Which would be news to the historical Booker T. Washington and or Booker T. and the MGs. Which, by the way, the MGs were actually three of the guys from the Blues Brothers. They were old Stax Vault session musicians. Yes. I, I mean, I knew that they were old Stax musicians, but I did not know that they were in the Blues Brothers because I've never seen the Blues Brothers. <gasps> Margaret. <laughs> uh, I need to point out, I am going to be in Chicago next month, and I had to find things that weren't Blues Brothers related to do. Uh, and then someone pointed out that Ferris Bueller's Day Off is also in Chicago. That's so true. I have more things to do now. 
You can go and pretend to be Abe Froman, the Sausage King. Uh, I can go to an art gallery and <laughs> take a video of the fo- painting, and then my face, and the painting, and then my face. I mean, they do go to the Art Institute of Chicago in that movie. So, you that's know, that's, yeah. that's a worthwhile thing to do. Chicago, which is not on the East Coast, just so you know. It's in the Midwest, in you've the already Midwest. told me. Just reminding <laughs> you. So... In light of this ignorance about America, it seems worthwhile to ask you, where did you grow up, Lucas? I grew up in lots and lots of places all across Canada. Mm-hmm. I was originally born in North Vancouver, Lionsgate Hospital, and my both my parents were living there at the time. But shortly after, they started moving around due to my dad's work. For pretty much my entire childhood, I was moving from place to place, and that was both houses and cities. So I did spend a significant amount of time in New Brunswick, in Fredericton, and which was sort of my kind- kindergarten through to about grade three, and then later came back and did grade 10, 11, 12 there. Uh, I also spent some time in Gatineau, which is on the French side of Ottawa. It sounds French. It is. My, actually, my, my entire dad's family is French-Canadian, and half of my mom's family. So yeah, I'm about three quarters Québécois. Wow, I had no idea you were so Québécoisian. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Look, really? It's still early where I am, okay? Just it's... deal with it. <laughs> All right. Kevin Kwabi and I am. As part of that, like I was often going to multiple schools in a year. I was having multiple sets of friends. And I think I adjusted in that way to where I, frankly, when I, when I finally did come to Australia, I, any place I was living became the longest time I had ever lived in one place from the first apartment to the second second apartment and so on each time that I would like gain another year it was the longest I'd ever been in one city and the longest I'd been in one place that is dizzying mm. and I mean it's become a, it's become a catchphrase at this point but I do like to say that anytime I meet a Canadian overseas I've either lived where they're from or I've driven through it and I know all the stores and I know that, oh, you know, if you're, if you're from Riviere de Lou, I know it's this far until you get to Montreal. And once you get to Montreal, you have to be on the 20, and then you got to jink your way through when you're going through the city because Montreal's a mess of butt and there's no bypass. And Riviere de Lou is where the, the good rest stops are with the chuck wagons where you can get an apple turnover. And, and you can explain all these things, and someone <laughs> will go, oh, wow, it's like you've been there. I'm like, yes, well, I, I've driven through there quite a bit. <laughs> As part of that, my family would often do these huge cross-country road trips usually moving from one place to the other with everything strapped to the top of the car, like the Beverly Hillbillies, <laughs> and a dog and a cat both in the car at the same time. So it was an adventure. That is a lovely way of describing it, an adventure. <laughs> I'm just coming at this from the position of my mom still lives in the house I grew up in, so I lived there my whole life. I went away to college for four years, England in college for one year, and then I moved back to Boston and into the apartment in which I currently live, where I've now lived for nine years. (laughs) So you can see why I would have such a would be so dazzled by how much you've moved around. Yeah. See, what you what you find though is that in my mom's case, you end up with the same version of stuff in (laughs) different formations. So, like, I can go over to my mom's place. She's living in Winnipeg right now, and I can see. The same pictures that have been hanging on the wall since I was in maybe grade four. And while, you know, some of the furniture has been changed up, there's still the same afghan on the back of the couch. There's still the same, like, hook rug in the front sun porch. So there are all these things, like these, like, version 12.2 of Mm -hmm. her stuff. 
So you basically just have a much more flexible sense of what home is. Oh, absolutely. That's not a bad thing to come out with. No, really. And I mean, it's some things where it's like I find my memories of certain places tend to blend together. Like Mm -hmm. I can remember watching a certain movie and then coming out to discuss it with my dad and one of his friends in the living room. Mm -hmm. But in that memory, the living room is from a place in Burnaby, BC, as is the guy that I was talking to, my dad's friend. But the bedroom that I remember watching it in was one from Fredericton when I was in grade 10, which was on the north side of Fredericton on a house on stilts that we were living in that later flooded. And so it's like your brain starts to like memento style mesh these things together because frankly, there are, there's so much of it. There's so much that, that uh, I've seen that it keeps the important part that I was watching Best of the Best too and went out to talk about... <laughs> what happened in that movie to one of my dad's friends who found it very fascinating (laughs) well this brings up our next traditional question which is what kind of kid were you i was a kid where like there's a distinct kind of change midway through my childhood not in any any kind of bad way just in the way i handled things because due to some of the due to the, the itinerant nature of my family and the fact that we were always moving and things were always changing there was a distinct kind of skip midway through. And I can kind of tie it to my parents' divorce, which was when mm-hmm. I was about 10. But some of the habits were there throughout. When I was quite young, I was a kid who had lots of toys, but that was because I never broke anything. I was always extremely careful with my stuff. And How? like when my friends would come up, when my friends would come over, like I would play with it normally, but mm-hmm. when my friends would come over, the friends that would break stuff, I would ask my dad to put it up on the highest shelf that even I couldn't reach <laughs> because I knew that rotten kid from next door was going to come over and he smashes his things as soon as he gets it. <laughs> A little fastidious. Yeah, I, I was. I'm actually still extremely fastidious when it comes to like mess and things like that. Not in that I'm my house is needed as a pin because it's slowly overflowing at the edges, but instead, like for example, when I'm eating, I hate having any like if I'm eating wings or ribs or anything, I can't have any sauce on my hands. <laughs> like I have to constantly be cleaning up like a raccoon. It's, uh, <laughs> which which is exactly the image I wanted to give just then. <laughs> Very good work. Great work. But the habits that stick through about what kind of kid I was, I mean, I was always a kid who was very interested in things. Like I would, I was big into nature, into, you know, into bugs, into mm-hmm. animals. Into peregrine like, falcons. In peregrine falcons. I had a subscription to Ranger Rick. Mm-hmm. I was very into nature and stuff like that. But I would also know all the names of my Transformers and remember how to transform all of them. And I would work it out without reading the instructions. And I, when I would watch things like Power Rangers, I would write down lists of all the different combinations of the different swords <laughs> and stuff. So I was very much... And, and then what happened later is that due to a combination of things that I'm not really going to get into, there was some, for lack of a better word, there was some poverty involved. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't a lot of... Well, you know, where, where there was plenty before, there was less of that. And mm-hmm. I adapted to that by essentially applying the same kind of laser focus to a smaller sampling frame. Mm-hmm. So rather than, you know, having a new movie to watch all the time, I would watch the same 10 movies over and over and over again. I see. And the same with books and the same with other things. And, or, you know, I would, and I've mentioned this a couple times in the podcast before, I would get a magazine and read it from cover to cover to cover to cover over and over and over again until I knew everything that was in it. Because I knew that, especially if it was something like a video game magazine, I knew I probably was not going to get any of these video games. So I would have to 
experience it this way. And again, this was not something I was conscious of. It's right. something that I've come to understand looking back that I would like immerse myself in these things because I, I didn't know when something was going to be the last thing of that type that I got, which is kind of fatalistic when you think about it. <laughs> Yeah. When you were reading these video game magazines about mm-hmm. video games you'd probably never have, can you remember, like, what was the holy grail video game? Like, what was the video game you knew you would never get, but you wanted most of all? And then have you played it since, and did it live up to the hype? The the generated exclusively by you hype. <laughs> <laughs> See, I could remember I had at one point a Sega Saturn, which was not a terribly popular system. Mm-hmm. It, I think it only came on the American market for, like, less than a year. Mm-hmm. And... I, which was great for me because then the store, stopped, the local store stopped selling them and put them in the bargain bin for like five bucks and I got a whole bunch of new games. But, <laughs> so, you know, me benefiting off the fact that Sega couldn't produce this console anymore. But what it was is that I had, I had read in an EGM that there was a game called Knights Bracket Into Dreams. Mm-hmm. And what it was is it had a special controller that would allow you to control it flight in 3d and they were saying that it was a revolutionary game and they had all these screenshots and it looked amazing and i remember looking at it and thinking this is really cool it's so cool they designed a whole new controller to play it mm-hmm. and understanding that i'm probably not going to be able to convince my dad to get me uh, a new controller just to play this one game that uh, you know right. no one's ever heard of and hasn't even been released yet and I remember looking back, and it's actually, it is known for being a fairly revolutionary game. It looks terrible now, though. <laughs> like it's so blocky, and the polygons are sticking out, and yeah. But hey, so there you go. There was my, my holy grail. But you've never played it? No, because the thing is, I mean, I could probably get it on an emulator now. Yeah. But I don't think the emulator community for the Saturn games is particularly high. That's so terrible. But, but I could probably look it up, though. But like, what if it would be your favorite game? I mean, like, it looks terrible, but that doesn't say anything about the gameplay, Lucas. That's true. I could be, you know, flying these sort of Sonic the Hedgehog-looking Harlequin people through a night sky of Tokyo through rings. So, hey. Right. Could be amazing. It could be amazing. I mean, I think you have some homework to do for this, the math I, of the I may the have episode. to. I will, I will report back. Thank you. The 10 movies you watched. So, with this scarcity model, like, what was the book and the movie that you ended up really profoundly endeared to that you now look at and you're like, I would never have watched that movie (laughs) twice if it hadn't been part of a fixed set of movies I could watch. And now I love it like life itself and book, etc. Let me tell you about a little movie called Kickboxer (laughs) starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Why don't you tell me about that? It's it's about a guy mm-hmm. whose brother is a kickboxer and his brother gets hurt. And Ugh. so he decides to train in the Muay Thai way, like the mighty whitey that he is. Sure. In order to learn how to beat the guy who beat up his brother. And there's Ugh. lots and lots of training montages and Jean-Claude Van Damme screaming as his legs are stretched and other <laughs> such. And kick, kicking a tree until it falls over and then he, he like nearly breaks his leg doing it. Obviously. As, as we all do with kicking trees. Yep. Okay, kickboxer. <laughs> These are good answers. These are good answers, Lucas. And and yes, the Blues Brothers was actually one of those. And I know you haven't seen it, but it's, it was very important to the point where I used to go to sleep watching it. And I would be asleep by the time they got to the part where he was getting out of prison and they were IDing all of the contents of his pockets. Which is, it's a great movie to fall asleep to because the first maybe four minutes is just footsteps. <laughs> as they walk him through the grounds of the prison and as the credits roll. So it's like I could be asleep by the time the actual dialogue would happen. 
Well, I mean, that's pretty great <laughs> that you were so well trained to fall asleep so quickly. Although apparently that's that's lasted to adulthood where I have a particular routine at night where I'll, I'll like, you know, I'll have a shower, I'll get into my pajamas, brush my teeth, and I'll start to read and I'll last maybe three pages and my eyes start to fall shut. And but and the minute I turn off the light, I'm completely asleep. So <laughs> It drives Kimiko nuts. Like she's, she's still reading and I'm already snoring. <laughs> My friend Sarah, who has shared a bedroom with me a couple of times, is also just dazzled by how quickly I fall asleep. She and I both listen to audiobooks to fall asleep. And she'll be like, yeah, you know, it'll be like 40, 45 minutes of audiobook. And I was like, oh, I have that sleep timer where you can just have it turn off after eight minutes. And I never make it that far. (laughs) I always have to rewind when I start listening the next morning. And it's something you raised the scarcity model. And I think that leads directly into my uh, secret career as a legendary videotape pirate as in in my early teens <laughs> um <laughs> tell me more the thing is when i say legendary i'm i am not i'm not exaggerating because here's <laughs> the thing is that from like well, after my parents split up my dad would do the divorced dad thing which is where you know he'd buy an extravagant gift when he was in town and one of those was he took me to a yard sale and bought me a little tv with an old VCR that would just balance on top of it. And I didn't have anywhere to put it in my kid's bedroom, so it went in the hollow under the desk where your legs would normally go. Uh-huh. And I would sit on the floor and watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and WWF Royal Rumble 93, which is less great, <laughs> and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and a war movie called Uncommon Valor with Gene Hackman and Patrick Swayze. <laughs> and... Uh, And these movies. And so that VCR was one of the old ones, which would last forever. It's probably still working somewhere. But later, when I had later moved in with my dad, they bought a new VCR and they had a second one. And dad showed me, oh, you know, you can do this and tape it off the TV. And I went, well, hang on. If a cable plugs into the TV and records there, (laughs) what if I plug this cable into that VCR and that VCR into a second VCR and put that one on channel three and I can record tape to tape? And then I started to find out the video stores in the area that would have like $1 Wednesdays uh-huh. that would do like, oh, you know, these old movies, you can get like these ones for a dollar. And I think they like some of them started to ban me because I would turn up before school and <laughs> rent like six movies mm-hmm. and be there the next day to return those movies and get six more. <laughs> And what I would do is I would use, I would pop the little tab off the tape so that I could use the extended play mode and I could get three movies onto a single tape. This. And then we moved into a house where the previous owner had been a, a DJ and like a video editor. And he left behind like a, a huge room in the garage full of blank cassette cases and labels. <laughs> and then the whole thing <laughs> went off a cliff because I got organized. Oh my God. <laughs> And hey, to quote your friend Judge John Hodgman, the difference between a hoarder and a collector mm-hmm. is an adequate means of display. Yeah. And I had a pair of cinder blocks and a couple of shelves, <laughs> and I had my cassettes all lined up with very neat labels saying well, what was on each one. What was the best movie you ever pirated? Uh, I'd have to say it was the first Matrix movie, which <laughs> I then wore out making copies for all of my friends because <laughs> I had it and they didn't. Yeah, no, that sounds right. <laughs> Which also meant that to this day, I know maybe the first half of that movie by heart. (laughs) That story checks out. Sounds exactly (laughs) right. Um, 
Okay, I'm going to move on to some questions from past guests and sure. listeners of the show. And I'm going to start out with a question from Kate Reculia, which is, what's the first book or movie you remember reading or watching and thinking, I should not be reading this, but of course you kept reading or watching it anyway. Why did it feel forbidden? And did you ever confess and or get found out? Okay, well, there's two There's two versions of this. Mm-hmm. One is the video version. See, I was maybe, maybe 10 or 11. This was in Massey, Ontario, which is a, a town where, depending on which sign you look at, has 1,100 or 1,300 people. <laughs> and my mother was the local minister. She was a fairly new minister. She just finished up her student ministry, and this was her first parish. And she was over having coffee with Bob and Betty, whose names escape me. Whose names otherwise escape you? Or are you just calling them Bob and Betty as like Lorem Ipsum? filler text no, no. <laughs> their names were in fact bob and betty i just don't remember their surnames because everyone's <laughs> known by a first name when you're a kid sure and and uh, they kind of sat me in the basement mm-hmm. and bob was like oh i'll put on a movie for you do you like westerns and i'm like yeah yeah they're okay <laughs> and so he puts on this western and i'm watching it and it's and it's pretty funny and it's kind of, it's kind of a comedy one too and there's like you know a train robbery and oh there's a guy that <laughs> that uh, won't give him the safe <laughs> and they're calling in. He's like, "No, no, I've got, I've got uh, orders from the owner of the bank, and I'm not coming in." So they blow up the train, and it's really funny. <laughs> and then at a certain point, one of the characters like hides in this woman's cabin, and she comes home, and he holds her at gunpoint and makes her undress. <laughs> and I went from playing with the Meccano set that had been left for me to play with to being very focused on the TV. <laughs> yeah. And being frozen and just sort of staring at this scene, which went on for quite a while and, and then cut away before you saw anything, of course, because it was a you know movie made in the 70s. And then it went back to being Western. But I was riveted to this TV because I didn't know when it was going to happen again. This is what the hell. And then my mom comes down the stairs and mm-hmm. says, oh, what are you watching? And I may have sort of squeaked and went, nothing, it's just a movie, go away. <laughs> and then my mom looked for a second and went, "Oh, this is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I love this movie." <laughs> That's good. So At that least... was the first one. <laughs> At least what? At least she had a positive response to the movie and wasn't like, "This is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid." Especially as this is framed around like, "My mom had just completed her ministry." She wasn't like, "This is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This is the devil's work." Oh, no, my mom would never call anything that had Robert Redford in it the devil's work. Just saying. <laughs> as, as a kid who had to sit through when she got out of Africa, out of the library. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Also, Sarah Plain and Tall and The Princess Bride. But that was the only one that made an impression on me was The Princess Bride. This, this second one was when I went to, also in Massey, this was later, though. This was when I was going back to visit her in Summers. I went mm-hmm. to the local library where I normally would just go and raid the science fiction and fantasy shelves. And they were having a library sale. And so for like $2, you got well, like a little succulent in a pot and a book. Like it mm-hmm. was a combined thing, a garden and library sale. Because small towns. <laughs> sure. And I you know, got a little cactus and looked around and saw a book that had a, a fossil of a shark's jawbone on the front. And it wasn't Jaws. It was a book called The Predators. 
<laughs> and it was by by Mark Washburn and Robert Webb. And I picked this up and read the back. And the back was basically an explanation of setting up a fight between a Kodiak grizzly bear and a great white shark. <laughs> Sounds amazing. And how they were going to sell tickets and put it on pay-per-view because media is the devil, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I saw it was $2 and I got my cactus. I'm like, yes, I will read this book. What the back of the book failed to mention was not only was there, oh, we have to catch the shark and we have to catch the bear and those bits were exciting. Sure. Uh, it skipped all of the sex in this book. <laughs> there was so much sex in that book. like, And sex that I now as an adult know is not a good idea if it's even possible. <laughs> And I remember the finish of the book was that the small communist republic they are having it in has a revolution and everyone dies, (laughs) including the bear and the shark. And this is after a scene in which a woman coats a man's penis in cocaine and then has sex with him. (laughs) That seems so unhealthy. And unnecessary. Yeah, what a waste. Why overcomplicate things? (laughs) How hedonistic is your life that you think, you know what? This is what I need on my Thursday. <laughs> a cocaine, a, a dick dipped in cocaine, like as though it were powdered sugar. Yes. <laughs> Yikes. It's just, it seems like it'd be gummy. Yikes. <laughs> and and as for whether whether I uh, I copped to it and whether and confessed, no, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that book may still be in a box of my old stuff at my mom's house. But no, I have not ever confessed to that. So thank you, Kate, for your question. Great work, Kate. Great work. From Craig Getting, I have the The human laugh track? The human laugh track. One Mylon Craig Getting? Yeah. Like cartoon of the famous comedy duo Cartoon and Robot. (laughs) Robot's questions come later. He asks, what songs did you like as a kid? (laughs) Broadly defined as, let's say, ages 8 to 16. That you would never choose to listen to today. Okay, well, if, if we were going by the later stages, we could go into all the various kind of terrible and just loud and angry, like sort of hard rock and metal that I listened to when I was a teenager. We could even go further and look into my late teens when I had not one, not two, but three kid rock albums. Oh my goodness, Lucas. Three hey, kid ha- rock albums. And two Uncle Cracker albums and a Nickelback album. Yikes. At least only one Nickelback album. I left them behind a few moves ago. Thank you very much. Thank God. But no, I'm going to go further back. (laughs) And I'm going to point to... Because you see, Margaret, before there was Weird Al, there was Ray Stevens. (laughs) Silence. Sure. Do you not remember Ray Stevens? I have never heard of Ray Stevens, no. Okay, well, Ray Stevens was a comedy singer, sort of sort of a country-ish kind of singer. It started in the late 60s, no, sorry, mid-60s, and was most popular in the 70s and 80s. He had such songs as The Streak. Mm-hmm. He had a song called Guitarzan. <laughs> and let's see, there was also, uh, oh yes, and the one that is most reprehensible, uh, Ahab the Arab, Sheik of the Burning Sands. So mm-hmm. I think you're getting the idea. Uh, there yeah, were some that were like 
kind of funny that we're the, like looking now it's like i could see some that were clearly a send-up of the johnny cash telling a story like boy named sue kind of songs there was one called the blue cyclone where a guy just gets repeatedly beaten up by a local bully and every friend he enlists just runs away mm-hmm. but it's like okay you're clearly trying to do a thing there and one of the reasons i wouldn't listen to it now apart from the horrible racial stuff is that a lot of them are just not that funny and <laughs> Also, he's come out and had a lot of terrible right-wing political views. Oh, I would never have expected that from the man who wrote Ahab, the Arab. <laughs> Sheik of the Burning Sands. Hey, the one good <laughs> bit of that song is that he named his camel Clyde. And there's a bit in the song where he stops his camel and he goes, whoa, Clyde. And that, the naming of, of an animal has, of, as Clyde has made it into many video games where I have to name my mount. I may have named my horse Clyde in Skyrim, <laughs> which also led me to find the train station Clyde, which is in, in Sydney. Very funny and trying to explain to people why it's so funny that there is a, there's a train station named Clyde. And when the train pulls up, you guys say, whoa, Clyde. And no one would do it. Oh, if I'm ever in Sydney with you, I'll do it. Hey, if we're ever in Melbourne, we can go to Batman. Batman has the best sign. Excellent. Okay. If we're ever in Melbourne... We can go to Batman. I have a mm. bunch of great questions from uh, Camille Washington. Oh, good. A beloved friend and one half of the Unfriendly Black Hotties podcast. Mm-hmm. So first up, what are some of the snacks you had in your lunch growing up? She says, this is important. My mom never let me have any of the American processed snacks that everybody else had. Lunchables, Gogurt. Dunkaroos. So now I have an unusually robust interest in such things. Well, my school lunches were pretty uniform in that because I I was a very finicky eater as a child. Mm -hmm. And so the way to get me to eat a lunch was that it had to be either peanut butter and jam (laughs) or occasionally peanut butter and sugar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) White bread, peanut butter, sprinkled white sugar, more peanut butter, more white bread. Wow. A peanut butter and sugar sandwich when left in a school bag with like math books and pencil cases and stuff compresses into a new form, <laughs> which looking back was kind of terrible, but I felt it was amazing because it was like, like it was compressed into almost like this like superfood where it was just this, <laughs> this peanut buttery blob and I would eat that. As for snacks though, we would get, we would get fruit snacks. But they would be the ones that looked almost like, like they were shaped almost like your thumbnail where it was like a little like half moon, but with a flat bottom. Mm-hmm. And occasionally there was a Vogue where you get those that, that were dipped in yogurt. And those were surprisingly okay, even though that sounds terrible. Yeah, I feel like dipped in yogurt, like whatever that white topping was that we called yogurt dipped in the late 80s and early 90s like it had nothing to do with yogurt but it could be very tasty exactly and it was like i used to just basically think it was almost like white chocolate however there was very much competition on the canadian playgrounds because there were some kids that would get the really good expensive fruit snacks that were like you know oh what was it, it was like shark snacks yeah like all little sharks yep. or ones that were little jet fighters and i remember there was a vogue one year where the certain ones would be black and it would yes. be like the black stealth bomber and it was always like grape or black currant or something and yeah it was always the the one the one kid would get those and everyone else would beg him to try some and of course he wouldn't share because that kid's a jerk that doesn't that sound very canadian to me 
being unwilling to share your fruit snacks. But yeah, that, that was my snack situation. It's pretty good, pretty good. And we, we never got raisins. Yeah, we never got raisins, never got fruit because, again, those bags were so full of heavy things that the fruit would come out as a thin paste on the other side. <laughs> so, yeah, it was usually fruit snacks or those little yogurts. Never gogurt. I think I was a little too old for gogurt when it yeah. came out. But we had those little yogurt popper things, one of which did explode in my bag at one point, which was oh, no. horrific. Awful, awful. Camille also asks, did you have an after-school pop culture consumption routine? For her, it was Dragon Ball Z at 3 p.m., Sailor Moon at 3.30, and followed by The Oprah Show with her mom at 4. That explains a lot about Camille. Doesn't it just? (laughs) Well, my after school, I remember that I would come home and Transformers was always on before I got home. And so dad would tape that for me. Those tapes are still around. I I watched them into university. But then afterwards, there would be G.I. Joe and, and... then it would just be a random assortment of whatever was showing that year. I remember there, you know, there would occasionally be Thundercats, but not in a way that I really remember much of what actually happened in that show. There would be the Smurfs, there would be all these things. But I think specifically there was a morning routine when I was mm-hmm. a little older mm-hmm. where I would wake up in the morning and again, I had a TV in my room, you know, that, that old clunker TV that I probably couldn't move on my own if I needed to. <laughs> but it would be I would wake up and I would watch Batman the Animated Series before school it was very formative because it was in syndication so they would show an episode every single day wow it was great oh of course in later years you had Tiny Toon Adventures Animaniacs which was like a solid hour block when I got home from school before Power Rangers which I was a little too old for but I still watched because I had the excuse of having a younger sibling I was allowed to sneak in there. And for all the, you know, they probably would have teased me had I said, oh, yes, I watch Power Rangers regularly. When Tommy became the White Ranger, everyone at school was talking about it. So, hypocrites. <laughs> hypocrites. Indeed. Well, that's a very good answer. Also, Camille should should go and listen to, there's a podcast called Sailor Business, which is where Chris Sims and Jordan D. White, who's a Marvel editor, and Chris Sims is a comic reviewer and critic, they basically recap every episode of Sailor Moon from the beginning. It's a really good show. That sounds right up Camille's alley. I think she would enjoy it. Also, like, they should have Camille on the show. They should, because specifically, all their guests are always women, for obvious reasons. Because, (laughs) as they put it, not even we want to hear two dudes sitting around talking about Sailor Moon. Very astute fellows. (laughs) Also from Camille, when was the first time you got way too drunk and wanted to die the next day, either from the hangover or from the deep shame that accompanied your memories of the evening. What were you drinking? Are you still able to drink that thing? Okay, so when I was doing my stupid drinking at university, I was held back by the fact that I didn't like beer. I didn't like wine. I actually didn't like either of those things until my sort of early to mid-20s. Mm-hmm. So what we would do is we would drink, if we were feeling rich, we would buy Smirnoff Ice, which in Canada is 6.9%. Holy smokes! Yeah, that's the red set. Now, over here in Australia, the red one is like 4.5%, and there's a Smirnoff Ice Double Black, which is more expensive, which is 6.9%. But, yeah, you could get loaded on those. <laughs> but if for the most part, what we would drink was something called Vex, V-E-X, which was the knockoff Canadian Smirnoff Ice. And it had a variety of flavors that would range from gag-inducing to not bad at first, but it really grows on you and then you don't want it anymore. (laughs) And things it was chosen because it was 
you know, what, what an Australian would call lolly water. You could just power through it because it was sweet. <laughs> but the only times I would get hangovers when I was younger is if I was stupid and didn't eat anything or hadn't slept properly the night before. Basically exhaustion mm-hmm. or something physical like that, mm-hmm. which has stuck to the point where if, for example, I'll have lunch and no dinner and have maybe two glasses of wine at a work function, I'll feel terrible the next day, even though I wasn't even close to tipsy. It's just not fair. <laughs> Food is important, people. Always line your stomach. But the the real story was I, I was a little bit older, mm-hmm. and I was at a housewarming party for one of my now ex's workmates. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those housewarming parties where they had the sort of wall of booze with like three inches left in every bottle. Mm-hmm. Like clearly they had compiled from various houses. Sure. And they and they had gone to the the sort of basement books type super cheap bookstore and bought a book that said a thousand and one cocktails with pictures of all the things. And they had said something to the effect of, Oh, we're making a grasshopper and I kind of leaned over having finished the beer that I had brought mm-hmm. and said, That's ridiculous. Grasshoppers have brandy in it. Let me mix those. <laughs> Thus began a night where I think I worked it out, where I, I think I, like, I was pouring one one for me and one for the person asking for the drink oh, no. for the entire night. Oh, no. And the and these were terrible, like, sugary, sweet cocktails or things that had milk in it. Oh, and no. Lucas. I think I had somewhere in the neighborhood of, like, between 16 and 20 standard drinks and, like, was, like, falling over myself to walk home and that was the first time i'd ever vomited from alcohol wow and wait how old were you when that happened uh what 23 24 that is an impressively late age at which to first vomit <laughs> from over consuming alcohol i did it in the shower like a clean festivities <laughs> person and then attempted to push it down the drain and it didn't oh, go well no. for me <laughs> oh no <laughs> Well, can you still dumb. drink the drinks that you made that night? Yes, I do actually enjoy a grasshopper when made correctly. <laughs> <laughs> However, I do not drink Smirnoff Ice or any of or any of its compatriots. Right, but I mean that's that's a different thing. <laughs> and because I don't think Camille would ever forgive me if I didn't ask this question, I gotta ask you: favorite way to eat corn that is not on "quote unquote" the cob, and then, but also. What is your corn on Dakab method? Typewriter style? Cash register receipt style? Deviant hop around without a plan style? What <laughs> do you does? All right. You, you, are you ready? I'm are you ready, ready for I'm me ready. to break Camille's heart? I'm going to break her oh heart. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm going to get real close up on the mic when I say this. Oh, my God. Lucas. I, I, don't, like, I don't like corn. I never have. Lucas. Is this airing before you come to Boston? I think it will. So she's she has time to like plan her murder of it me. It just I mean <laughs> there was going to be one kind of greeting and it was going to be one mm-hmm. where she probably cried and happiness at meeting you and now like there's just going to be a completely different kind of greeting <laughs> where she's just going to coldly acknowledge that you exist and then stalk away. Like, I don't know. I don't know why you did that to yourself, but you played yourself. <laughs> I have indeed played myself. <laughs> But no, um, I, I just never liked it. And see, now occasionally, like even because I'm, I'm nowhere near as picky as I was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Also, that was defeated by coming to a new country and having people where I didn't want to embarrass myself by being the one who didn't like literally everything. So I just ate whatever was given to me. 
And then I find out what things I, I really don't like. For example, like corn. corn. Specific, also cream corn. I don't, I don't well, know how people can do cream corn. It's terrible. That I... Oh, it's the worst. I feel like many people agree with you on cream corn. Kimiko eats cream corn on breakfast. Oh. Uh, Kimiko eats cream corn on toast for breakfast sometimes. I mean, I, I feel like deal. Camille might as well. I don't want to... I don't want to hurt my track record with Camille <laughs> yeah. by insulting cream corn because maybe she loves it. You know me. I, I'm wary of casseroles of all kinds because someone could have put mayonnaise in that, and I wouldn't know, <laughs> and I can't live that life. There's a particular French-Canadian dish that's called pâté chinois, which actually just means Chinese pie, which is kind of a an equivalent of shepherd's pie, except for all pâté chinois has the same stuff in it. It's always... The bottom layer is hamburger mince, and then the second layer is cream corn, and the top layer is mashed potatoes. All right, there's no mayonnaise in this. I was just there is. I was just looking suspiciously at the microphone, waiting for you to mm-hmm. say mayonnaise, and then there was no mayonnaise. The thing is, though, my sister used to take this cube of pâté chinois. There's nothing Chinese about that. Oh, nothing at all. <laughs> I'm sure there's a Wikipedia somewhere that explains why this terrible misnomer has happened. Uh, but my sister used to take it and just like pour ketchup on it and then use her fork to make what looked like custard out of this dish. Mm-hmm. Pinkish custard because of the combination of potatoes and the ketchup. And that combination, just looking at it, like I, I'm, I'm gagging a little. Yeah, that I sounds say. awful. Like it's, eh, eh, n- no. That sounds... French Canadian food, some French Canadian food is nice. Sugar pie, tortière, very nice. Pâté chinois is not one of them. Story checks out, friend. Story <laughs> checks out. Now I have a question from Rosie Fletcher, previous guest and host of the podcast, Rosie and Jessica's Day of Fun. Secret cottage detective? Yeah, and secret sister of mine. <laughs> like, I've always wanted to be a Fletcher. She says that she would love to know how you first encountered fandom online. She has heady memories of Lie Journal circa 2004, and she's always intrigued by people's first message boards, communities, slash online friendships. While I had dabbled in some online fandom, usually around stuff like, like you know, Star Trek or wrestling or stuff like that, just looking at, you know, sites with information on them, where it really went nuts is with a little show you might have heard of called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> because, you see, I was a closet fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer because I was told both by my dad and by some of my friends at school that Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I'm not sure if you know this, Margaret, it's a show for girls. Weird. And the only guys who watch it are weirdos. So, you know, you don't want to be one of them. So I would watch it with my hand on the the tuner, the cha- channel changer, <laughs> so that if anyone came in, I could flip to another channel and pretend I was watching something else. <laughs> Which also meant that I would miss huge swaths of the show. I would also see them out of order. And so what I ended up doing is by the time I got to university, this was first year university, so it would have been uh, late 2000. Mm -hmm. I had no cable TV at all. There was one in the common area, but I didn't really go and use that. I had my, you know, hooked nothing but the VCR TV. But the Buffy box sets were really expensive. It was, you know, they were the three videotapes for you know forty dollars right so what i would do is i would go to a site called the watcher's diary which was an episode guide basically where Mm -hmm. it would go through and recap the plots and give good quotes and 
you know, trivia and things like that. And then I realized over Christmas holidays where I had nowhere to go and I was one of the few people left in the dormitories, I was bored out of my mind and I saw, oh, wait, they've got a forum. Isn't this interesting? <laughs> and from that, I was ba- basically it it's the, was the basis for a number of friendships that I still have today. Wow. To the point where last year when I went to Mexico for my older sister's wedding, I stopped in L.A. and I got to meet my friends Annika and Will, who I had known for 15 years, and I was meeting them for the first time. That's so beautiful. It w- it was really nice, and and uh, I like I I have people on Twitter that I know from that time. I actually just saw a thing on Facebook where uh, someone who had the username Hyper Onion is now married, and I went, um, you were you were a little kid, like you were like a, a, a astonishingly funny and dry seventeen year old, <laughs> and now you're married and you have a beard. This is weird. Very weird. Uh, so that was it. And, and while this story doesn't have the greatest ending, I can say it because it's still a good story. Yeah, this is what I was wondering. I thought that this was the case. This was the forum where I met a woman that eventually brought me to Australia that I eventually married and then later divorced. So basically, I had, after a long series of misadventures, which I don't have time for on this podcast, <laughs> I was at my mom's place in Canada. I was 20 and I had no job, and I had flunked out of university, and I had come back from a disastrous trip to the UK, where because I had the wrong visa, I had been sent back, Ugh. and so had wasted my trip. What I'd, what I'd meant to have be a sort of a three-month traveling holiday lasted 10 days, 10 Aww. stressful days. And so I was back and defeated, and my dad said to me, well, look, why don't you go see that girl in Australia you're always talking to on your forum? <laughs> and him and my mom pooled together money and sent me over to Australia. And I met my ex-wife, Tanya, and we started a relationship, and that was the reason for my staying in Australia. So 13 years ago, I made a decision based on a Buffy the Vampire Slayer message board and landed in a place that was to become my home. Right. And half the decision was good. (laughs) Yeah, let's go with that. (laughs) I mean, you're very happy in Australia. Yes, I am. I certainly am. Kit Walker had asked, how did you end up in Australia? And has a few more questions about Australia versus Canada that I'm going to ask you. Okay. Australian wildlife versus Canadian wildlife cage match. Who wins? I think it, I think it is, I I did actually think about this question significantly. (laughs) And I think it comes down to like one-on-one matches. Mm-hmm. Because Canada has some pretty great wildlife, you know. Mm-hmm. You have bears and elk and raccoons and lynx and all kinds of great things. However, it's when you line it up with the Australian equivalents yeah. that things start to go pear-shaped. Because, okay, Canadians have prairie dogs, like, you know, little gophers that dig up the ground and are cute and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Australians have wombats, which are like a gopher. If that gopher was also that kid thudbutt from Hook, <laughs> that we could like roll into a ball and like bowl you over. Yeah. Yeah. So like that. So yeah, your prairie dog is not going to last very long. So you have squirrels in Canada. Over here you have sugar gliders, which are like smaller, faster squirrels, squirrels on crack. They can also fly. Right. All of them can fly, not just the flying ones, like in squirrels. While you have wolves and stuff, you have dingoes over here, and which I suppose would match up more with coyotes. And they'll eat your baby. Yeah, they will, in fact, eat your baby, which is why <laughs> you are not to trust any dog that has some dingo blood in them because they could they could be partially wild, essentially. But then you get down to the level of, 
you know, bats and spiders and snakes and stuff. And then Australia has it all its own way. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the actual answer to this question is like island animals always win because island Mm -hmm. animals get fucked up by evolution. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're basically thrown into a death match. So it's like, you know, survive or die. You have 20 minutes. As opposed to Canada, where it's like you can roam off to Canada and not be seen for years. Exactly. Just look at, I was going to come up with somebody, but it's too early in the morning, so. <laughs> just just think about it. It's like you could evolve to deal with this threat that you're facing, or you could just walk over there a bit. I'm sure eventually if you walk, there'll be no more threat. <laughs> exactly. The conflict-averse wildlife of Canada. And Alexander Hardison asks. What's your name, man? <laughs> I also, every single time I read that, had that response to it. So I'm glad we're on the same page. What's a weird difference between Canada and Australia that most people don't know about? The money is really heavy over here, specifically the coins. (laughs) It's something you wouldn't expect because North American currency is made up of basically wafers of cardboard that's dipped in metal. It's very light, especially Canadian Mm -hmm. currency. So, you know, you'll get a quarter in Canada and it'll be this thin, light little thing with a caribou on it. And I came to Australia. Not only is the money solid metal, which means it's very heavy, Mm -hmm. but also the amount of money that the coin is worth is inversely proportionate to the size of the coin. So (laughs) your $2 coin is very small. Your $1 coin is a little bigger. Your 20 cent coin is huge. Your 50 cent coin is even bigger with flat edges. And then inexplicably, the 5 cent coin is also tiny. It's like a dime. So... (laughs) So it's not even consistent. Yeah. So your your little two dollar coin, the ones you want, are like like a pound coin in the UK. So like they're they're little. Uh, whereas the big, if, if you have a pocket full of fifty, like if you put, for example, a five dollar note into a vending machine and it does the awful thing of giving you back nothing but fifty cent pieces, it's like your pocket is going to ring as you walk wherever you go. <laughs> Pub pocket is a real thing. And it is a tragedy that stalks our our nation. <laughs> well, that is a very unexpected answer, but delightful, delightful information. I feel like we all know more about Australia now. <laughs> Jumping back into the math of you, Michelle Haydorn would like to know how you got into photography. And she particularly loves that one photo you took while on a train in Germany. Oh, it's hanging in a prominent place in her shop. Many clients have expressed an appreciation for it as well. This Michelle character seems real nice. She is, in fact, real nice. Uh, she has been a follower of the previous podcast that I did with Joel way back when called The Culture Squad, which now can't be found because Joel has expunged it from various records. Joel! Right. But, no, uh, Michelle's lovely, and she's Shell, so- Shell underscore so's on Twitter. She needs more followers. Can people go follow her? As for how I got into photography, it was pretty much... A part of my life since I think the age of maybe six or seven I was given a because there was a deal at the McDonald's where if you bought a certain thing for a dollar you would get a little 110 Concorde like instant camera where it was like mm-hmm. it looked almost like like a bar of soap with a little slider on the bottom and it took and, and 110 is like almost like a 16 millimeter negative it's very very small and so the pictures you get it from it are not great but and it was you might remember them that the film that went in them looked almost like Mickey Mouse ears where it was like these two little round bits with a bar that that 
join them in the middle. Mm -hmm. And so I would take this thing around and just take pictures. And it was just assumed from an early age that, yes, Lucas is going to take pictures. We'll make sure he'll have some film. And I would just be shooting. Then later, as I got older, I got a, it wasn't a 35 millimeter camera. It was an APS camera, which was a special Advantix system that Kodak brought out, which was like a little cartridge film. And you would drop it in mm-hmm. and it would automatically load, which was very space aged for the time. Ooh. Again, knowing what I know now, the, the film itself was not very good. But I had a little tiny camera that would do that drop in thing. And it had part of the APS gimmick was it had three shapes of pictures that you would take you could take normal wide angle or like panoramas Mm -hmm. and i would put everything onto panorama because you get these giant pictures back from walmart yeah that were like you know 20 centimeters to a side and then as tall as normal photo and what i would do is i would you know go around take pictures of of my friends or whatever and uh, my dad who was working uh, in a different city at the time as part of his job would get film developed and what he would say to me is look when I'm back to visit the family, just give me your film. I'll put it in with my stuff that I'm developing for work, and then I'll send you the photos. And I remember there was a specific conversation that happened when he said, uh, Lucas, uh, I just wanted to ask you about some of the photos. I went, oh, okay. Are you taking pictures of, like, trees and stuff? <laughs> and I kind of muttered and scuffed my toe, and, yeah, sometimes I just, you know, I like the way it looked and stuff. And he's like, okay, just because... You know, I thought you'd just be taking pictures with your friends and stuff. And okay, if you want to, I suppose there's no problem with you taking pictures of trees. <laughs> like honestly, it's like I've been caught smoking behind the garage. <laughs> but it w- that was my first attempt to essentially take artistic photos. <laughs> and then I actually got a hand-me-down digital camera from Dad when he upgraded his work one, and it it shot 2.5 megapixels, and it was 800 by 600 every photo, and I had a compact flash card with 128 megabytes on it, and I could take, to my mind, unlimited photos. As many pictures of trees as you wanted. Exactly. Trees and people and whatever else, and to the point where I would just take the camera with me and just take pictures of whatever I saw. Because it compared to, compared to film, it was just infinite. I could just take as much as I want. I could take, you know, 20 shots trying to get something right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking back, I was experimenting, and I was doing things like... I was doing street photography. I was taking pictures of people, which, again, I was terrified of getting noticed doing so <laughs> in case anyone would go, you know, what the hell are you doing? And I'd have to run away, which led to, led to me actually doing a portrait project because I had a fear of taking pictures of people directly. <laughs> of someone looking into the camera and meeting my eyes through the camera would still give my heart a little jolt because I felt like I was doing something wrong. <laughs> And what Michelle's probably talking about is my interest in film, which actually happened about four years ago now. I got a, huh. got a gift certificate from a workplace that I hated. Uh, <laughs> I worked at a debt collection company as a manager oh. for a year. And it was a toxic environment full of some not great people. What? A debt collection environment? Was a toxic environment? Weird. Go figure. Weird. Ask me about skip tracing sometimes. What happened is that I'm I'm now I'll give a little bit of info about my my day job. I'm a people manager. I normally manage teams of anywhere between ten and fifteen people, and I like to think that I'm a good manager. When I left, my team got together and got me like essentially a, a gift card, mm-hmm. and it was like one of those prepaid debit cards, and I could use it wherever I wanted. And it was like a hundred dollars, and I was like, "Wow, that's really nice for a place that I hated." 
<laughs> you know, thanks, guys. And I had 10 days between when I left that job and started my new job. And so what I, you know, I would go on walking, walking tours of Sydney, which is sort of what I do in any downtime. I just kind of pick a spot on a map and just start walking. Um, and which is also why I know lots of shortcuts in, in the city. <laughs> so what I did, I walked from my house down to Mrs. Macquarie's chair, which is sort of a promontory, which is behind the opera house down in the ocean. And as I walked back, I walked past the Museum of Contemporary Art. And so I went in there because it's free and had a look around. And then in their gift shop, they had a Lomography Diana Mini. And it was on sale that day. And it was uh, $56 marked down from 76 mm. And I looked at it and I went, huh, I haven't shot a film camera since, you know, 1999. Yeah, sure, I'll give it. I mean, I've, I've got this free money burning a hole in my pocket. Right. I may as well. And... And the reason I chose it is because it's a half-frame camera, which means it shoots, on a 36-exposure roll of film, it shoots 72 portrait pictures Ooh. as opposed to 36 landscape pictures, which is great if you're trying to remember how to shoot film. <laughs> it, it's a completely manual camera. There's no light meter. There's nothing electronic about it. It's clockwork and a spring, and you have to hold it really still because it's so small that the action of pressing down the shutter will make the camera shake and make your picture blurry. But with that, I mean, it was just experimentation. It was just, all right, let's see what I can do. What happens if I change this? What happens if, oh, because it's not coupled shutter, I can do double exposures. I can overlap things. I can shoot, you know, a bunch of half frame and then change it to full frame. And so it crosses over. Mm. And I just, after a little while, I was starting to get better and starting to get better. And I, and I looked on the website and I'm like, oh, wait, they've got a whole series of forums plus a whole bunch of other cameras. And now, four years later, I have, I think at last count, I think it's, I think nearly 60 cameras. I think four years later, it's safe to say you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, indeed. The film has me now. I, I think I shoot more film than I do digital unless I'm being, you know, if, unless I'm on vacation or I'm being hired to shoot headshots. Mm -hmm. I don't shoot much digital apart from just like my phone and stuff right whereas you know my photo lab people know me by name and i'm like now not so much because of where i work it's not so convenient but it used to be that i was you know twice a week at my photo lab to drop stuff off mm. and it's not cheap I no mean, it's, it's even doing it at, at the the nice local lab that i have it's not cheap but i'm now at the point where i'm exhibiting film shots that i've taken with plastic cameras from the 60s mm. And I do a lot of experimentation with frame splitting, which is where you block off part of the lens, shoot, and then flip it around and shoot the other half, mm -hmm. which means you can combine two separate, two or more separate elements into a completely unexpected picture at the end. Mm -hmm. And you have no idea what's going to happen until it comes out. That's pretty addictive. I can see why that would be so gripping. So now I have a few questions about this show that you'd make. Okay. <laughs> Are we... Should we... Should we go for them? Should we try to wrap it up? You are, it's late where you are. Uh, it's one in the morning at the moment, and I have to get up at uh, 10 to 6, but I'm on a roll right now, so I'm happy to blow through as many as you like. Okay, great. Megan Nielsen asks, how do you choose your guests for the show? Okay, well, essentially, it started off where I was looking at other podcasters, because mm -hmm. the short run of podcasting that I'd done with Joel had let me know that occasionally when people aren't used to being on mic, it can be very difficult. And I know that people people can be fantastic talkers. Mm -hmm. And I've I know quite a few fantastic talkers. That doesn't always translate to clarity on a mic, to being able to 
run a conversation in an interview. And so I thought, okay, who do I know who are podcasters and who I'm on good terms with? And of course, I looked directly to, um, actually, I think I was about to say I looked directly to you, but I think you were in fact my second ask. Ugh. Because uh, I think actually Camille, she who now hates me because I hate corn. <laughs> Doesn't know it yet. Was talking to me. Yeah, was talking to me like just via DM or something, mm-hmm. and I just blurted out, "I'm thinking of doing a show. Mm-hmm. W- would you like to be a guest?" And and her response was, "Yeah, of course." Mm-hmm. And that shocked me because I presumed I would have to write an enormous spiel and convince people to be on the show. But what I've found is that in just in the asking, if it's done correctly, mm-hmm. you get a yes, and then it's just up to you to hammer out the details. There was you, there was your compatriots on appointment television, there was my friend Jetta, who does a wrestling podcast, and so it is available as well. Who has a question coming up. (laughs) Oh, good. And from there, I just started asking. And I mean, sometimes people don't get back to me, but I mean, hey, I've got commission requests, which is literally, hey, I'd like to give you money if you do this thing for me that people don't respond to. So I know people are busy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't always answer my mom's emails, so... (laughs) So it's very it's very easy to see things go by, and I don't hold any ill will for that. Mm-hmm. However, I am going to keep asking. And, I mean, I've got some very exciting guests lined up that I never expected would respond and go, yes, I'm interested to be on your show. Eee. And it's just a matter of getting that, that schedule done. So, yeah, really just a matter of who's available, who's interesting, who wants to do it mm-hmm. is how I pick my guests. She also wonders if you ever worry if they're going to discuss topics you're familiar with or if somebody is going to discuss something like completely out of left field, her example being like, I want to talk about my rich childhood of building model ships in bottles. I, I read that question and I thought, that would be a fascinating interview. <laughs> yeah, I, think- I would love to hear from that person. No, I mean, it's honestly, part of the reason I wanted to do the show is that when I was a kid traveling all over Canada, pop culture became a shorthand to get to know people. Mm-hmm. You would find your people in the room based upon the music they would listen to, the TV shows they watched, the video games they played. And as such, I became quite good at remembering details so I could make friends, essentially. Right. And so I I had a terrible history as someone who used to talk in quotes a lot in my late adolescence, as I'm sure many other people annoyed <laughs> other people with you know in place of a personality we all went through that phase i think yeah we were all there and but from that i mean i got to the point where i can pretty much carry on a conversation about most things but what's really interested me about the show has been the stuff where i've had literally no idea (laughs) where someone's come to me and said i want to talk about this thing Mm -hmm. and i've said okay, great. I mean, we can talk about some other stuff too, and I'll have some stuff to say, and you can just explain this to me, and I can ask questions. For example, your friend Catherine Van Arendonk talked to me at length about Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Oh my god, I'm so excited to hear that. (laughs) And it was really interesting, and I had literally never watched that show. I only knew it from, like, you know, promos that would play during other things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lots and lots of fan fiction written about Sully. Yep. Very popular fan fiction. Or Kit Walker, who asked a question earlier, brought up Bionicle, which was completely alien to me. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, tell me about Bionicle. And Bionicle is really interesting, especially her Mary Sue character that she made, (laughs) which was on an episode of her own podcast. But 
so, so yeah, I, I'm happy to have someone bring to me something like, you know, basket weaving or building ships in a bottle. The weirder, the better. Absolutely. For the math of you. So if you're a listener and you're like, I don't know, my childhood influences are too weird for Lucas. Now you know you're wrong and you should submit yourself to the math of you at gmail.com. Exactly right. Yes. Okay. Jetta, aforementioned, wanted to ask if the math of you became a full-time job, what would you do to keep from becoming tedious, repetitive labor for yourself? I think I would, I'd have to mix it up a little bit. Because part of the reason that the math of you has been easy to keep to schedule is because I have a fairly strict intro and outro that I do. And to the point where that was Joel's bit of feedback is that he said the intro doesn't sound like me. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's because I'm a very enthusiastic person. I get excited about what? stuff. What? You? What? And no. I know, right? You, what? Would, you wouldn't think it. Never. Giving that sort of measured intro and outro Mm-hmm. keeps me focused, keeps me grounded, and I know what I have to do. Because I found, for example, when I was doing a video cooking blog in 2006, mm-hmm. I found that I would constantly have, like, be reiterating, be constantly trying to one-up myself and, oh, you got to say a different version of this thing this time. And you burn out really quickly. Mm-hmm. But I think if I was doing the math of you as a job, I would do the main show, but I think I'd end up with a couple of like little spin-off shows. Like, you know, I'd run a quiz like certain Lindas who shall remain nameless on Pop Culture <laughs> Happy Hour, uh, which I did do in the death throes of my previous podcast, The Culture Squad. <laughs> I would like we did a thing where everyone brought a quiz, and my quiz was about three times longer than everybody else's. <laughs> and so the next time we did a quiz thing, they're just like, "Why don't we just let Lucas run it?" <laughs> Because I over-prepare for things. What? Again, Lucas, I'm shocked. So that's what I would do. I would probably have lots of little iterations of shorter episodes and quick hits and things like that to keep things fresh. I like it. I like it. It's a good plan. And from Andrew Cunningham, otherwise known as Robot of the famous comedy duo Cartoon and Robot, he wants to know who would be your dream guest for the math of you. Please give both realistic slash attainable and pie in the sky answers. First off, I'm I'm fairly realistic, even in my pie in the sky <laughs> answers, because like I could say, oh, I'd like to have a famous person on. It's like, and I would. They'd, they'd probably be interesting, or they'd be really boring. I have no idea. But I think like the two that I think, if you said, who would you want to have tomorrow? Who would you be over the moon to have on this show? Mm-hmm. I think the two would be Jay Edidin and Chris Sims. And Chris Sims is an easy answer because Chris Sims has. You know, I think what is it? he has War Rocket Ajax. He has Sailor Business. He has oh, Movie Fighters. He has a number of podcasts, and he and he strikes me as someone who is incredibly enthusiastic about stuff. I I feel like from the podcasts of his that I've listened to, where he's involved, there's just a, a wonderful energy to everything that he brings to it. And I think like going down conversational rabbit holes with that guy, I think would be really interesting. Mm. Uh, my other choice is Jay Edidin. Now Jay Edidin is one half of Jay and Miles Explain the X Men. And they are, I think, just a super interesting person. They have this this podcast that has been long running that I've listened to every episode of, and this sort of a measured but also very again an enthusiastic way of going through reams and reams of continuity. And they also love Speed Racer, and they they also write very very well on topics like intersectional feminism. Mm-hmm. And I think that. It would just be a really, like, and anytime they do a, an interview where 
it, rather than being the sort of format of Jay and Miles, it's just this loose thing. It just goes in such interesting places, and I think that it would be really cool to have them on the show. Well, those sound very attainable. Have you asked those people to be on the show? I've sent an email to Jay and Miles, but they are also very busy. Sure, uh, sure. They, you know, they have, they have a, a weekly podcast, plus they go to conventions and stuff. So if that happened, that would be amazing. If not, then not, because realism. As for, like, pie-in-the-sky stuff, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm like trying to think of like celebrities or something that I would have, but really, I mean, nothing's coming to mind. Maybe it's because it's one sixteen in the morning. But <laughs> poor baby. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Who who do you think would be interesting on the map of you? I mean, you know my feelings about John Hodgman. I'd love to hear him on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think John Hodgman would be very interesting. Although, because the thing is, I, my my initial worry would be that I would get sarcastic Hodgman, but you've assured me that John Hodgman is heartfelt when he needs to be. Yes. Very heartfelt. <laughs> and now that we've mentioned the fact that it is 116 where you are, I'm going to end with Andrew's final question, which is what is it like to schedule remote recording with people who are often halfway around the world? Any specific challenges? Like, um, um say, like a guest <laughs> <laughs> who said, let's move it an hour earlier, forgetting the hour where it began, and also forgot the day that it was happening, gave you a heart attack, thinking you would be having a different day, and then showed up an hour and a half late for the day that it was happening. Like, anything like that? Yeah, that that can be a challenge sometimes, but honestly, for the most part, it's been relatively easy. Um, All I had to do, <laughs> yeah, all I had to do was build a three-tabbed spreadsheet of a three-month period <laughs> with comparative time zones based on regions. Uh, and send it along as part of my pitch document so people could book out their own times. You know, simple, like that. Sure, easy as pie. (laughs) Because that's how my brain works. But no, really, what I've done is that I record on Saturday and Sunday mornings for me, which for most people is either Friday and Saturday afternoon or evening for for the U.S. Mm -hmm. And for the U.K., I've set it up that I can record in an evening on a Sunday which works out to a morning on a Sunday. And it's just like, it's just finding out those sweet spots where it works. Mm-hmm. Now, I also do have, like I mentioned, my day job where I work uh, from 8.30 until 5, which means I have to get up at 10 to 6, and I don't get home until mm, maybe 7 o'clock. Weekdays are pretty much out for me. So occasionally someone will, you know, have to drop out purely due to scheduling, and that's understandable. You know, not everybody has a Friday and Saturday free. Mm-hmm you know, even with a couple weeks notice. So really the scheduling hasn't been too bad. And my final question, my actual final question, Mm -hmm. if you could only have one wrestler on this podcast, which wrestler would it be? Ooh. See, if you had asked me a year and a half ago, I would have said CM Punk. But CM Punk has kind of, (laughs) he's more machine now than man. He's twisted and evil. Uh, (laughs) No, he's he's said some stuff that I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. recently and uh so and i i think yeah he's, he's a little less of an interesting get for me i would say daniel bryan although again daniel bryan's a little bit oversaturated at the moment he's on a show called total bellas with his wife brie bella which is basically the the like you know how you guys talked about ben and lauren <laughs> happily ever after yeah i do happily ever after you gotta add the question mark. You, gotta. you know how you said that was the most scripted reality show that you've ever seen? Yes. You have not seen Total Divas or its sequel spin-off series, Total Bellas. It's true. Which is set in the as a reality show in the fake world of professional wrestling. <laughs> and it, it is both real and 
also more fake than the rest of Lee. This sounds great. Although there was a, because Total Bellas also has John Cena and Nikki Bella on it. And John Cena is a comic genius. Yeah, he's been great in, the, in movies. Yeah, he's great. And the thing is, the show is clearly trying to portray him as this, like, very serious, like, stern taskmaster. Like, oh, if you're staying at the house, you have to make the bed after you leave. And we always have formal dinner at 8.30, and you must come in a suit. And afterwards, there'll be brandy and cigars and no walking on the grass. But then in between takes, he is just being himself <laughs> and just making, like, terrible puns and jokes. And, and at one point, they go to an art class where... Everyone has to draw, like, this negative space of, like, two legs and a pair of shoes and a gradient behind it. And he drew uh, a winged penis <laughs> Classic. with a gradient behind it. Classic. And then had to explain it as, well, you see, these are some lemons. And this is a, a hammer smashing those lemons. <laughs> and I think the main sort of symbolism is that when, when life gives you lemons, you should hammer those lemons and make lemonade. <laughs> all with a complete deadpan straight face and i'm just like oh my god so it sounds god, to me like your answer might be john cena actually yes i <laughs> i would totally have john cena on here in a heartbeat well <laughs> i hope to hear you interview john cena on the math of you before long do we have an outro <laughs> but i did want to say before we before we wrapped up people ask me Actually, Joel specifically asked me, he's like, the Matthew view, you know, that's not really all that descriptive. And the Matthew view actually comes from one Margaret Hula Hoop Willison. It's true. I'm actually scrolling through our direct messages right now to see if I can find the thing you said you hadn't watched. It, It was The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Yeah. Oh, my God. I still can't believe you've never watched The Adventures of Pete and Pete. I really, I don't know how you add up. Like... (laughs) <laughs> and exact and that that exactly explains what it was. You, what you said was that you couldn't imagine that that show in particular was not an essential part of the math of me. Yeah. And I had been struggling with a name for the show for a very long time. I wasn't quite at the dusty bookshelves level as overdue <laughs> will point out. Good old Dustin bookshelves. But I was con- like a thing is any title for a podcast that has to do with you know origin stories or anything like that has been taken like even if it's a podcast in 2007 that failed after three episodes i still don't want to take the name of another podcast i mean you don't want a cursed podcast name exactly so i ended up like you said the math of you and it just worked out and i remember actually saying it to jetta who was my very first record and she's like it sounds like an indie band or an npr show and i went (laughs) I can live with that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like sounding like an NPR show, if you're a podcast, that's a good look. It is, right? NPR makes great podcasts, and I don't say that only because they have me on one occasionally. <laughs> I was a fan before I was, uh, like, the guy who's um, the president of the Hair Club for Men. <laughs> you, you're, not only, you're not only the president, you're also a client. Exactly. <laughs> exactly like that. Well, this was a delight. This was worth waking up for me at 7.30 in the morning. I hope it was worth staying up for you until 1.30 at night. I certainly hope so, too. Uh, I feel it may have been a little disjointed and looser than I expected. but And I didn't get to explain Kit's question about why Stephen Amell fought Cody Rhodes or Stardust dressed as a supervillain at WrestleMania. I mean, I'll explain it to her later. It'll be fine. You can explain that right now on air. I have no to be. <laughs> it's only your okay. sleep we're cutting into. Okay, well, I will take a, a short sidebar and explain this. Okay, so Stephen Amell is the main actor in Arrow, 
It's a show you may be familiar with. I am. Yes. Yes. It's the one where he does the all the exercises in those <laughs> montages that everyone looks at. Like he does the salmon ladder thing where he climbs a ladder without a ladder. <laughs> WWE does this thing every once in a while where as a cross promotion, they have an actor or a celebrity of some sort at ringside. They'll often, you know, send free tickets to people. Mm-hmm. And if they want to start an angle, they will have the celebrity get into an altercation with a wrestler. They've done it with Mickey Rourke in the front row after the wrestler came out mm-hmm. and he ended up punching Chris Jericho in the face. Sure. And then nothing came of it because it was terrible. <laughs> uh, and and Lawrence Taylor famously, like football player Lawrence Taylor famously had a main event match at WrestleMania versus Bam Bam Bigelow in a WrestleMania that everyone should forget because it was really, really bad. <laughs> he had his own cheerleaders and theme music and everything and came out in parachute pants that had lightning on them. And the less said about Karl Malone and Dennis Rodman in WCW, the better. But Stephen Amell had one of these angles. And it was mildly interesting because Stephen Amell is in fantastic shape. So the idea that he could go in and, you know, keep up with some of the wrestlers would be fine. And Cody Rhodes, who is playing Stardust, who, by the way, is... Do you have an internet-capable device in front of you? I do. I would like you to... Go to Google okay. and type in Cody Rhodes, C-O-D-Y-R-R-H-O-D-E-S, mm-hmm. Stardust, all one word, and I'll wait. Okay, great. Should I be looking at pictures? <laughs> yeah, pictures. Well, that's distinctive. Yeah. <laughs> so Cody, the thing is, it was actually a really good gimmick because he had a, uh, his older brother, uh, Dustin Rhodes, had a character, a long-running character called Gold Dust, which was equally sort of gold-painted and wore a weird kind of unitard thing. <laughs> and so when Cody Rhodes, who had been kind of this kind of handsome younger brother of of the family, mm-hmm. joined forces with his brother and came up with a new character of Stardust. And Stardust was a good guy for a while. And then Stardust became a supervillain, and it was great. <laughs> now, add to, the, add to that Google search the words Mr. Sinister okay. on the end. And then you'll see that he actually became an X-Men villain for one of his WrestleMania entrances. <laughs> it's amazing because Cody Rhodes is a giant freaking nerd. <laughs> and so, of course, being a nerd, he would want to be involved with Arrow. And so when Stephen Amell came out at WrestleMania and was in a tag match with Adrian Neville, who was also an amazing wrestler... Mm-hmm. He had an okay match, but it was far better than a lot of the other ones I saw. It's still better than David Arquette winning the WCW title. I mean, what wouldn't be? But yeah, there you go, Kit. That's your explanation. It was an angle. It was moderately okay, and it started because they needed to promote Arrow on the network. And this is an answer to Kit's question. Do you have an explanation for the rivalry between that one WWE wrestler and the dude from Arrow? Because nobody else seems to. So. Well, there you go. I hope I helped. <laughs> <laughs> I think this was right over the question that asked whether I'd ever punched a bird. Uh, no, it's right over what's the most you've overpaid for a thing you didn't need. And then have you ever punched a bird? Which I would uh, be. The answer is no. I know I have never punched a bird. However, I did do a Matrix-style avoid of a budgie that flew at my head. And I'm also saying, like, it's only a matter of time until you have to punch a bird because you keep chasing the raven-type birds that you have in, like, Uh, a wongs. You keep chasing them around Australia. And I keep telling you, they're very smart and they remember faces, Lucas. So when the Kurwongs come for you... You're probably going to have to punch a bird. <laughs> That's true. There is one large, rather thuggish one that, that hangs out outside of the gym at work, waiting for someone to drop their lunch outside. Lucas. And they're huge. Lucas. <laughs> 
I'm just what? saying, like, sleep with one eye open, okay? Those Kurwongs are going to get you. They will, in fact, get me. <laughs> okay, this is terrific fun, Lucas. I hope it's not a nightmare to edit. Well, thank you very much for being my host, Mark. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> much to Margaret H. Willison for her time. And a very special thank you to everyone who sent in questions. I had a great time answering them. I had a little bit of difficulty preparing for this week's signature beverage. I'm so often making drinks for other people that I tend to stick to very standard things when I'm making them for myself. Usually a martini or a gin and tonic or something that I can whip up in a hurry while serving other people. In this case, I've chosen to go with the last drink that really knocked my socks off. I have a habit in research for the show of visiting local small bars, usually during times when there's not too many people there, and ordering interesting drinks to get an idea of what tastes good and what I might want to try next. In this case, I took a long walk across Sydney and ended up at the Archie Rose Distillery. Archie Rose is known locally for its gin, its vodka, and recently its white bourbon, which I've yet to have a chance to try. Also a quick hi to my friend Michaela, who works there behind the scenes. When I first walked in, I couldn't go past a perfect Manhattan, which was made exquisitely, and so I decided to take a chance. I don't normally drink Negronis because I'm not a fan of a bitter flavor, and the combination of Campari and sweet vermouth is just a little bit too much for me. However, I could not go past this concoction, which is called the end of the road. All Negronis have the same proportions, equal measures of three spirits, usually gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari then usually flavored with bitters or orange peel. The end of the road turns that on its head. Rather than gin, it uses an aged scotch whiskey. Rather than sweet vermouth, it uses green chartreuse. The Campari gets to stay the same. For the scotch, Archie Rose uses Lefroy 10-year-old, whereas I substituted a 12-year-old Hibiki from the Japanese Suntory distillery. Combine all ingredients over ice in a beaker and stir very quickly until combined. Taste before serving and adjust if necessary. Strain into a martini glass and serve, usually to an expat Canadian sitting on the outside of the bar. I won't say this drink goes down smooth, but every mouthful is an experience. Enjoy! recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia. 
and is written and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. And this time, guest hosted by Margaret H. Willison. You can follow Margaret on Twitter at Mrs. Friday Next, or listen to her podcast, Appointment Television. New episodes of The Math of You are released every Wednesday evening. If you'd like to be a guest on The Math of You, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about, even if it is basket weaving or ships and bottles. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few bucks kicking around, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Lokified and directly support the show. You can also earn cool rewards like shoutouts on the air, physical mail, and early access to episodes, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review, because it helps with discoverability. I'll also read out any reviews I find on the show and give you a little shout-out. Next week, my guest will be Annie Creighton, co-host of The Gem Jam and I Will Fight You, to talk about her childhood role models and why Skeletor is living his best life. Join me, won't you? I was going to say, I'm, I'm talking into my brand new microphone because Joel is an enabler. <laughs> because I was editing the episode with him and he sounds so like cool and, and like his audio is contained and every time I talk I can hear the echo of like every bit of the room and I just like started yelling at him over text message going, show me a picture of your setup. I know you're in a, like a room full of wood. How are you not reflecting? And he's like, oh, it's just this lovely new microphone that I bought. And I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, and it's surprisingly affordable because JB Hi-Fi, where I used to work, got a whole new range of microphones. <laughs> and then I, I like went there on the way home, and I'm like, oh, I'm like, I, I did the thing where I walked through the aisles, and I'm like, oh, that's okay. They don't have this, so I can wait until after my trip to buy it. That's okay. And just in the way out, I saw the corner of a box peeking out of a shelf, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's son of a bitch. Yeah, son of a goddamn bitch. So I have bitch. to buy it. So I have to buy it. That and thing is, it's a really good microphone. It's a really good microphone. What kind of microphone is it? It's um, it's it's R O with a slash through D E. So is it Rude or Road? I never know. E. But I it's... sure as heck don't know, buddy. <laughs> See there, Flux has just said you're waking up in six hours. No, I'm not, Flux. <laughs> Can you tell Flux to go away? <laughs> I can. It actually has um. A setting where it's like dark room mode uh-huh. where it's like black and red but reversed Ooh. and I, I had it on for a minute like when I was I was I forget what I was doing I just turned it on and I turned over to Twitter and everyone's pictures were like nightmare pictures like in negative reverse so it's <laughs> like yeah I'm not gonna do that again uh yeah no that sounds terrifying I can do that on my cell phone on my iPhone if you like um just reverse the colors if you press it three times mm. Uh, and I do that sometimes. I, I used to use that. Yeah, I used to use that for um, previewing negatives. If it was a black and white thing, oh, I would reverse the colors. That's and, a much better uh, reason to use it than what I was about to say. What were you going to say? Well, I'll put it on that mode in a movie when I'm bored, but I still want to check my phone. Because <laughs> I feel like it's like if it's black screen and white text, like the glow is less distracting 
for the cinephiles whose eyes I'm dragging away from, I don't know, Jurassic World. <laughs> 22 Jump Street. Hey, 22 Jump Street is a great film. I still haven't seen 21 Jump Street. <laughs> Only 22 Jump Oh, speaking Jump of which, Street. you know what's a good film that I just saw the other day? What's, what? Magic Mike Double XL. Oh my god, the greatest movie of all time? Is that what you mean? It was surprisingly Lucas? fun. Uh, yes. Lucas, wait. Pause. You listen to me mm-hmm. on Pop Culture Happy Hour, right? Oh, yes. You know well, things, how I heard everyone I gush that, about it. Then what about it was surprisingly fun for you, young man? <laughs> was well, it I just, just presume... Confirmedly I just, fun? It was. It was more fun than I expected. But frankly, I expected it to be fun in a different way. But it was just sort of open and charming. So, also Kevin Kevin Nash is surprisingly great. (laughs) Plays a everyone surprisingly great. Now he has a background in wrestling. Is that correct? Oh yes, he was a wrestler for a long time. He was a WWF champion. Great. He also played Super Super Shredder in the second Ninja Turtles movie. (laughs) True story. Uh, and, and what's funny is that he is has always been in great shape, but frankly, he's had so many leg injuries. That's why his legs were so skinny. That's why he also doesn't dance in the movie. Yeah, and he sure does not dance. He sure does that not. One, one, yeah, he instead paints. And look, Lucas, if what I had meant by Magic Mike is extremely fun is Magic Mike is sexy fun times for people who like men sexually mm-hmm. then that mm-hmm. is what i would say but what i said about that movie was that it was a goddamn delight <laughs> it's a totally <laughs> different thing if the yeah, delight right. is in some way contained by a certain sexual orientation i do my i do my due diligence and i communicate that to people lucas i communicate that to people but that was just an incredibly fun and warm-hearted brilliant Road trip movie with great and frozen also yogurt jokes. Channing Tatum is a um, an android who to whom friction means nothing. Yeah, I mean Channing Tatum is just I don't even find him particularly sexually attractive. I just want to hang out with him all the time. What I have said and what I stand by, Lucas Brown, is the following: mm. that the best wingmen in the entire world, and all I want is I want to go out to a bar. Joe Biden and Channing Tatum. <laughs> well, maybe it's the time of night, but that made total sense. I mean, it's so not here's the a question, though. Okay. What sort of dog would Channing Tatum be? Um, boy, a dumb one, but like a surprisingly <laughs> smart dumb dog. Uh, I think See, I was be thinking like that first thought is golden retriever. Golden retriever mix. Oh yeah, definitely. Because you gotta have like a staffy or a pit bull or something in there for the yeah, muscles. Yeah, to get the and just does to just get the broadness of the head mm-hmm. and the wideness of the grin. So yeah. See, my my first thought was rescue greyhound, but uh, he's yeah. Lucas, you're right. I think it, yeah, it has to be some staffy in there. Lucas, Lucas. What? Are what? greyhounds a different animal in Australia? <laughs> what? <laughs> Greyhounds are like super thin, like patrician. Oh no no, spooks. No no no. You're think you're thinking of whippets. No, I'm thinking. Greyhounds of... are different. Greyhounds are all muscle. 
Lucas. I what? mean, greyhounds might be all muscle, but like still in terms of their frame. That's like true. greyhounds aren't secretly like another name for like Irish wolfhounds in Australia, are they? Like no. the greyhounds. No, we just call them Irish wolfhounds, or yeah. <laughs> so then the greyhounds that I'm familiar with in North America are also the greyhounds you grew up with as a North American. I had actually never seen a greyhound until I came to Australia. They, okay, they weren't so then, terribly popular. So then for all I know, they could be a different dog. But Lucas, <laughs> they're, they're, what? There is no dog in the world less like Channing Tatum <laughs> than a greyhound. I mean, that's not true. Maybe an Italian greyhound or a whippet. Yeah. But I was going to say a pug, but no. See, pugs are kind of unattractive, but like profoundly adorable. Much like, mm-hmm. to me, Channing Tatum. So, <laughs> but I mean, like, a Whippet is like Benedict Cumberbatch's con, right? Like, it's that kind of, quote-unquote, all-muscle, right? It's a That's true. A whip, yeah, definitely Whippets, sir. Buddy, you definitely have to send me a picture of Australian greyhounds because I'm still convinced it might be a different animal. I did see a Whippet and a greyhound chase each other around the park, and it was like a beautiful ballet. Like, go, just, like, frolicking the way dogs frolic when they kind of jump around each other, but doing that at top speed, like, the entire length of the park. It was kind of magical to watch. That sounds pretty and great. I looked down. It was amazing. And then I looked down at the uh, half Texan, half Jack Russell that I'm walking with. I'm like, why don't you do that? Um, he's perfect. <laughs> like, I don't know why. I don't know why you've decided to start this discussion with like one misbreed identifying Shandy Tatum and then two <laughs> insulting Junior who you know I love with my entire heart I just like I don't know why you're antagonizing me like this it's very early where I am I gotta get you fired up <laughs> now is Philadelphia on Boston time or yes. Chicago time Boston time oh okay, buddy so it was 11:30 in the morning you grew up on this side of the world uh huh we're all the east coast we're the east coast well according to time zone I chicago guess I is don't a know. different time zone yeah i know i mean chicago is a different time zone chicago is not on the east coast chicago is on if the you third also, coast you, you also got to remember that i grew up in canada i have no knowledge of where anything on the east side of, of the u.s is it's all this like snarled fist of urban renewal well all you need to know is that Chicago is not on the east side of the U.S. It's in, I heard it's in the Midwest. Although it is. I had, That's correct. I remember like actually telling someone that the Chicago was not the mis- <laughs> it was not the Midwest, and then got angrily co- corrected by someone going, "Yes, it is, you idiot." I mean, look, there See, are to people. To me, the, the Midwest is flyover country, but well, Chicago is Chicago is the one part of flyover country people stop in. Hmm. If you if you want to use the phrase flyover country, which as someone who went to college in Ohio, I have been carefully taught not to. Ohio is also the Midwest, although this is what I'm going to give you, Lucas. What I'm going to give you mm. is that there are some people from the Great Plains who state that the Great Plains are the only part of the Midwest that should be actually the Midwest. I thought you were going to say that the Great Plains were in fact great. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they say that about them, too. Um, when, every, when everyone knows they're merely good. Uh, and that referring to sort of like Middle East states of 
Ohio and Illinois and Indiana and so on, also as the Midwest, is like basically like coastal elitism at its peak. <laughs> that we're like, well, <laughs> you don't touch a coast, so you're in the middle. And you're further west than us, so you're west. <laughs> um, See, I, th- I think it's just all, all the states that are either squares or rhombuses or pentagons in the middle there. Did you just snort because I called the state a pentagon? No, I think I started at rhombus, but you know. (laughs) Parallelograms. Um, (laughs) So the most important question that I have for you, Lucas, Mm -hmm. is as follows. What's it like in the future? (laughs) Uh, It's very dark. Uh, There are cats running around that I'm hoping will stay silent. Uh, Kimiko has gone to sleep and <laughs> Smart has told me that if that if I wake her up with this ridiculousness that I may be murdered <laughs> okay alright but that's fair oh my god it sounded like somebody was walking around did you wake Kimiko up just by saying her name no no that, that's just these uh, remarkably creaky chairs she's not like the Babadook repeatedly edit out which I actually don't know <laughs> no. if that's what happens in the Babadook but Okay, so it's dark. Are you too scared to see it? Yes, correct. It's not too scared. I just, I know myself, Lucas, and I don't like scary Mm -hmm. movies. (laughs) That's fair. I could hear the process you went through right there where you're like, I have a follow-up question for that. And then you were like, wait a second, I'm not the one doing the interviewing. I'm the one being interviewed. Well, we haven't officially started yet. This is all going to go in the back matter, so... (laughs) No, I want what the future is like to be the first question, Lucas. Um, All right, fine. <laughs> well, I was thinking that if you wanted to, you, you could give my normal intro, and we could take it from there. Sure, but you have to tell me your normal intro. I mean, I mostly... You do listen to the show, right? I do listen to the show, Lucas, but I have too much space using song lyrics. I can't remember intros. <laughs> If you I, sung I start it, off, I'd remember. Why don't Wait, you tell me? No, I'm not going to do that. Um, you're joining this <laughs> conversation already in progress. Yeah, there's, right? there's, I'm, I'm going to be the one saying that. Okay. But then after that, I start off with, uh, well, you know, for those who don't know you, why don't you tell them okay. who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Which I started as a joke and I've kept because it always disarms people. <laughs> Because, yeah, it's, it's, everyone's first response to that question is always, oh, what, uh, and then they just <laughs> say whatever's on their mind. Okay. That's what you want. We'll have right. to see if this works on you. All right. And to remind you, nor- normally after the intro, I w- would normally ask people uh, where they grew up and what sort of kid they were. Okay. I'm not sure if you remember that from our episode, which continues to reel people in. Really? I had a guy who, I have a guy who I knew for two years, because I did a thing today where I basically just said, hey, you may not, guys not may not actually know, but I do this. I don't just retweet it. I actually do this show. <laughs> and he went and looked it up, and he was like, I'm listening to it now, and I'm so hooked. Oh, Prairie Falcons. That that hook has gotten more people than anybody, anything else that so you mean, anyone has said. like, I haven't been a hook. But Peregrine Falcons have been. 
you talking about peregrine falcons and what was the tree? Was it the chestnut tree? Castaneda Denta? Yeah, American chestnut. <laughs> yes, that's the one. Yeah. Well, what can I say, babe? Like, it's a very cool tree. <laughs> Which is good, because that's not far from where Joel lives. So we can say hi to Joel. Oh, speaking of, we didn't say anything nice about Joel, but apparently today is his birthday. I mean, we did. We said that he was a siren for microphones. Yes, we did. And uh, my friend Libby and I went back and forth complimenting him until he promptly exploded from embarrassment, which was great. And then I finished off by saying he had long, delicate hands like the wings of a mop. Perfect. Which he in fact does. Uh, that seems like he would. Just based on pictures, I can extrapolate and imagine what his hands would be like, and I imagine he would be thin and delicate. Mm. He's like the Thin White Duke if the Thin White Duke were an anime character, like a friendly anime character. I, I said at one point that he reminded me of uh, a real-life Fido Dido, which <laughs> no one in Australia got, uh, and his mum, who I've met, is like... Uh, did you ever see the TV show Pepper Ann? Yes. Much too cool for seventh Pepper- grade. Exactly. So Pepper and grew up and became a teacher of uh, special needs kids. Yeah. And oh, of is course just Joel's the coolest. Is a special needs teacher. Oh, she's great. Like, she's of course she is. Of course, yeah. that's how you get a human being like Joel. <laughs> this is very important information for me because my best friend is a special ed teacher, and mm. now I feel like. If she has a son, which would otherwise be a moment of mourning for me, I don't need to mourn at all because the son will grow up to be just like Joel, mm-hmm. which exactly. is a victory for Actually, all humankind. Yeah. Side note, Joel's episode comes out next week, and I think you're going to like it. Ooh, I'm very excited. Um, <laughs> now we should get back to this very serious business that we're in the middle of. Yeah. 